Chapter 21 During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, It is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but they were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you? David asked. They answered the king, As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we have been decimated and have no place in anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Ibiah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. The king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. But the king took Armini and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Ahiah's daughter, Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter Merab, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Maholothite. He handed them over to the Gibeonites, who killed them and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Rizpah, daughter of Iha, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds touch them by day or the wild animals by night. When David was told what Iha's daughter Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the cities of Jabesh-Gilead. They had stolen their bodies from the public square at Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them after they struck Saul down on Gilboa. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish, at Zelah in Benjamin, and did everything the king commanded. After that, God answered prayer on behalf of the land. Once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels and who was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David. But Abishai, son of Zariah, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, saying, Never again will you go out with us to battle, so that the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. In the course of time, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. At that time, Sibekai the Hushathite killed Saph, one of the descendants of Rapha. In another battle with the Philistines at Gob, Elhanan, son of Jer, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, 
who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. In still another battle, which took place at Gath, there was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in all. He also was descended from Rapha. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of Shimea, David's brother, killed him. These four were descendants of Rapha in Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. Welcome. Uh, if you are going to find out today that we do things like uh, not shying away from difficult parts of the Bible. It's one of the things we do here at, at Hunter Bible Church. Uh, we're looking at the very last section of 1 and 2 Samuel together, and what we just read is by no means the most confronting part of it. I reckon these chapters at the end of 1 and 2 Samuel from 13 to 24 that we're looking at today are some of the most confronting parts of the Bible I have ever preached on. And as already mentioned, these passages describe some horrific rape scenes that we'll have to deal with. And again, it's worth saying that because there will be those of us for whom these scenes may be all too real and it's worth letting you know before we get there. But these chapters are also going to be confronting in other ways as well. There are moments of terrible injustice and moments of confronting injustice, as well as moments of confronting justice, where justice is done and it's confronting. So, like's been said, I think this is going to be a challenging part of the Bible. And it's not that I'm trying to make it that, I'm not trying to stir up challengingness or anything like that, I just think it is. And so before we dig in, I'd love you to join me in asking God to help me and us as we look at it. Can we pray together? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that as we open your word, we get to hear you speak to us. And so we ask that today you'd help me as we work through it and you'd help us to have soft hearts and to meet you in it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of our time, it'd be great to have your Bibles open, we're going to be moving pretty quickly through these chapters. Most of our time is going to be spent walking through them, because if there aren't enough challenges today, there are 12 chapters for us to work through. So if you've been coming along for the last couple of weeks, we've been working through 1 and 2 Samuel, and in 2 Samuel, we've really seen the rise and rise of King David, all until last week, right? Last week in chapter 11, we witnessed David's great fall. He commits adultery by taking another man's wife and when he can't cover up what he's done, he arranges the husband's death, he murders them. And even though God shows amazing mercy to David in not holding David's sin against him for eternity, God does still administer terrible judgment on David for what he's done. In fact, it seems like what happens is that God decides to enact upon David the same level, the same type of justice that David would have enacted if it was up to him. Because remember last week, we looked at that story of Nathan, how Nathan presents this parable, this story to David about a rich farmer who steals a poor farmer's only lamb. Remember that? Nathan presents that to David. Remember how David responds to that in chapter 12, verse 5? David burned with anger against the rich man in the story. 
and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over. Four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the one who needs to get paid four times over. See, David thought it would it'd be good, it would be justice. The justice would be served if this man, this rich farmer, was punished four times over for taking another man's sheep. And maybe that, maybe that would be just. It's hard to tell, isn't it? But the rest of 2 Samuel, chapters 13 to 24, seem to be like it's God paying back David four times over for what he's done to Uriah and Bathsheba. And not four equal amounts either. As God meets out justice on, on David, we, it's kind of like we see these four ever-growing ripples of calamity fall upon David and his family and the nation of Israel because of David's sin. And we're reminded of Hannah's song that we just read. Where at the end of Hannah's song, she paints this picture of God as the terrifying judge of the world and the judge of his people and the judge of his king. And so what are these ripples of God's punishment we see in these chapters? Well, we saw the first one last week. So in the end of chapter 12, we see the death of David's newborn son. David prays and he fasts, but he understands that God's judgment is being carried out as the child dies. And then we barely get a moment to breathe before chapter 13 hits. Because in chapter 13, we see the second ripple flow out because we get introduced to David's oldest son, Amnon, who is the crown prince, right? He's the next in line to be king. And so look how we're introduced to Amnon in chapter 13, verse 1. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister, Tamar, that he made himself ill. So we're told that the crown prince has fallen in love with one of his sisters, and on one hand, it's just, it's just outright against God's law. This is an evil thing to, to marry your sister. This is half-sister, but it's still sister. But as we read on, it's devastating as we hear how Amnon comes up with a plan to act like he's sick so that he can get Tamar alone in his room. And he grabs her. When, he's, when she's alone in his room, he grabs her. He ignores her pleas to stop. And in verse 14, he overpowers her and rapes her and then abandons her. And it's horrible. We're meant to be disgusted by it. We're meant to feel for Tamar and how terribly she's been treated here. That she has no guilt in this at all. It's just Amnon's evil. It, it, it's this act that demands justice. Tamar should get justice. In God's law at the time, Absalom should receive the death penalty for what he's done. There should be a public execution, a public declaration that what Amnon has done is unjust and evil and he should be killed for what he's done. And that's what the king is meant to do. The king is meant to be the one in Israel who upholds justice and executes the evil. And so what will David, the father of both of them, do when he hears about this terrible evil that his son has done against his own daughter? 
Well, we hear the full extent of David's response to this in verse 22. This is everything David does. In verse 21, when the King David heard this, he was furious. That's it. There's nothing else. The great King David, who knows what is evil, who is righteous, who knows what it is to do wrong, he knows that this deserves death, but he does nothing to his oldest son, the prince. Again, we're meant to be shocked upon shock. This is meant to just make us so frustrated. And as an aside, if, isn't this the same type of anger that our culture is kind of dealing with at the moment? That not only is it terrible when these evil things happen, but what makes it all the more worse is when those who are meant to defend the weak and uphold justice just don't do it. It makes it worse. We're meant to long for justice. Well, it seems that Tamar's brother, Absalom, feels the same way. Absalom is the next brother in line for the throne. And so in the next few verses here, we, we read how he conspires to go behind the king's back to murder his older brother, Amnon. And and when he does this, we're meant to feel this mixed sense of justice and injustice. Because on one hand, Amnon, his older brother, deserved the death penalty. He deserved to die for the terrible thing he did to Tamar. And yet, Absalom wasn't really doing justice when he kills Amnon. It wasn't a public execution. There was no declaration that this was to to fulfill the law. It was just cold-blooded, anger-fueled murder, which also deserves the death penalty. And so by the end of chapter 14, we end up with this strange standoff between David and his son Absalom, next in line to be king, because Absalom has dealt with injustice by doing injustice. And David seems torn about whether to welcome him home or to punish him. But with Amnon's death, David has now watched his youngest son die and his oldest son die, and the ripples of God's judgment just keep growing. Because in chapters 15 to 20, so the next big chunk, 15 to 20, Absalom, David's son, decides to rise up and take the kingdom from David. So Absalom musters an army from the south and he approaches Jerusalem, and David the great king of all the battles, the great king who has never lost a battle before, rather than go and face his son Absalom and put an end to this mess, David takes his men and flees Jerusalem, leaving a few people behind and leaving the entire nation of Israel in chaos. And then Absalom does something worse. As Absalom arrives in the city, at the suggestion of one of his advisors, he decides to make a public statement about how he is now the king, about how the kingdom is now his. And he does it in the most disgustful way. Take a look at chapter 16 verses, from verse 21. Absalom's advisor said, Sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious, a stench, to your father, and the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of Israel. 
And again, words can't describe how terrible this is because the, the word that's used here is not sleep with your father's concubine. There's a word for sleep with, with someone and that's not the one used here. The word used here is go into them. Penetrate them. It's a completely horrendous treatment of women. And the hypocrisy of it. A few chapters earlier, Absalom killed a man for raping one woman, but now he essentially rapes ten of his father's wives in public. And we're meant to be disgusted by it. And that, that, that is actually the intention of what Absalom's doing. He wants David to be disgusted by it, outraged by it. And as we read this, it's kind of like we want David to, to turn around. We want David to hear about this and turn his army around, go back to Jerusalem. We're waiting for the great King David to step up. Because remember how David gets introduced to us in 1 Samuel? He's the shepherd of God's people who defends the lambs against the lion and the bear. He's the one who defends the weak. Where is David now? Where is this great shepherd of God's sheep when is he going to stand up for these women? To stand up for what is good and to hate what is evil. But he doesn't. He keeps avoiding Absalom and avoiding doing justice. In fact, he even does the opposite. It's, it's, it, it's so frustrating. In, chapters, in chapter 18, look what David tells his men. Finally, the civil war comes to a head as Absalom's army approaches David's army. And as David's men are going out to meet Absalom in battle, this is what David says to his commanders. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. All the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom. David's message to his troops, as they go and risk their lives, as they go and stand up to Absalom, is go easy on him. It's pathetic. We're meant to be frustrated by David's injustice here. And if, if there is a, one lesson to be learned here, it might be around how fathers and parents so often overlook or excuse their own children's sin. It seems to be a recurring theme in 1 and 2 Samuel. But even when Absalom eventually dies, David mourns and he wails and he weeps and he cries. He just, so much so that Joab, the commander of David's army, blows up at King, King David, saying, what are you doing? Why are you weeping and wailing over this evil man? Why don't you stand up to justice? Stand up to injustice. And why we're not told explicitly why David doesn't stand up to Amnon and Absalom, it, it seems that throughout these chapters, David knows that this is just yet another judgment from God on him and his house because David is guilty of almost exactly the same sins. Because this is exactly what, David, what, what God said would happen in chapter 12. Remember what Nathan the prophet said to David when he committed adultery with Bathsheba? Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. 
See, this has got to be in the back of David's mind as he looks out at his kingdom in complete chaos, as thousands of men's lives have been lost in this civil war battle, as women abused and raped, and three of his own sons now dead. David is acutely aware of God's hand in and over all these things as God's judgment on his sin. And we're not even at the end of this section of 2 Samuel yet. We've seen Amnon's mess and we've seen Absalom's mess. And in chapters 19 to 24, the very last section, we see David's personal mess. Apart from some of the records of David's Psalms and David's last words, and we hear a little bit about David's great fighting men and how much they love David and obey David, most of these chapters are a picture of David trying trying to do justice properly, trying to make things right and fair in the mess of everything that's been left behind. Where David failed to administer justice in chapters 13 to 19, chapters 19 to 24, we see David forced to administer justice to all these different people because he's the king, he has to do it. Now, I think what we're meant to do as we read these chapters is realise how very difficult, how messy it is to do justice fairly in this world. We have very, we have, my wife and I have four very good kids, thanks kids, four very good kids and yet there have been times where Julie and I have just sat there wondering how to do justice, how to, how to do some, how to respond fairly to when this person says this to that person and that person responds by doing this to this person and in, and in doing that affects this other person and that, that means this is now destroyed and now they don't want to do anything and how, how do you do justice? What is, what is fair? What is a, a, a fair way to bring about justice there? Do you judge all of them? Do you just judge the first one for everything that came about? Like, it's just messy. And that's what we see David try to do in these chapters at the end of 2 Samuel. Let me give you some examples that he, he works through. So, in chapter 19 and 20, should Amasa, who is the leader of Absalom's army, when Absalom approached Jerusalem, Amasa led the army to Jerusalem, should Amasa be killed for treason? Or, because he's got Israel's army with him, should, he, should David absorb him mercifully into his own army to bring peace? What's the right and just thing to do here? Or, what should David do with the ten concubines who he left behind and were forced to have sex with Absalom? What's the, what's the just way, what's a fair way to deal with, with that situation now? Should he take them back as his own, continue as if nothing happened? Or because of what, he's, what they've been through, should he, let them, should he release them, let them go free? But that would mean he'd have to divorce them. And, and What's a good and fair way to deal with those poor women? Or what about the issue we, had to, we just read that he had to face in chapter 21? In chapter 21, David's presented with this conundrum. How should David administer justice to a tribe of people, the Gibeonites? who Israel had promised they would never kill, but who saw the previous king all but completely slaughtered. How do you do justice now? Now, the king who slaughtered them is now dead, and they are all, there's only a few of them left, and thousands of them have died. How, how do you right that wrong? What does justice look like? Well, in the end, as we read, David agrees to allow seven of Saul's adult grandchildren to be slaughtered and impaled on a tree in public. 
And as we read that, it's, it's like we're meant to be unsure about whether that's a good call or not, because one of their mothers stays behind and keeps the birds from eating her son's flesh for months, and it doesn't seem right until the bodies are taken down and are given a proper burial, not as criminals, but as innocents. Doing justice is just so hard. And there's still one last, if, if they're not hard enough, there's still one last messy decision that David has to make in chapter 24. But before we get there, just, just want to point out, these chapters are meant to make us realise how humanly impossible it is to do perfect justice. Even for the great King, king David, in the middle of all these justice decisions, we, we read some of his last words and we hear of his great men who served him, but at the same time, we're, we're faced with a king who can't do good justice, perfect justice. And it makes us long for a king who will. We're meant to long for David's future king who will do perfect justice. But before we get to that, we have to deal with David's hardest decision in chapter 24. In chapter 24, all starts with David falling into sin again. He falls into sin by calling for a census of all Israel, a count of all Israel's fighting men. Now, it's not exactly clear why this is so evil. It could be because David's kind of claiming ownership, everyone he counts belongs to him, or it could be that there's some test of God's promises, whether God's promises that Israel will be like the sand on the seashore, uh, that whether this is actually true, but whatever it is, chapter 24, verse 10, look how David responds to what he's done. On the screen, 24, verse 10, David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. And so God's last judgment on David is to give David one last impossible judgment. God tells David that David has to choose the punishment to fit his own crime. He gives him three options. Three years of famine, three months of war, or three days of death by plague. David has to choose what punishment his people will receive for his sin. Can you imagine having to make that choice? Having to choose how much other people will suffer for your sin? How do you work that out? In fact, that's the whole point of the last few chapters, how it's impossible to do perfect justice in this life. God is putting this weight on David that only God himself can truly bear. Because only God knows what perfect justice looks like. That's what we're meant to rem rem be reminded of here. Only God knows the actual punishment that I deserve or that you deserve. No one else can possibly know what our sins truly deserve. Justice is only ever perfect in the hands of God who sees all, who sees what he's done in secret as well as what's done in public, who knows what's in the heart as well as what's done with the hands. The great promise of Hannah's song in chapter, one, in chapter 2 was that God would bring about final justice, perfect justice. 
And when we get to the New Testament, we find out that it's Jesus who is the great judge, isn't he? Jesus is the one who we will all stand before. And Jesus is the one who will finally bring justice for the oppressed, for the abused, for the weak. And also, justice for God. Jesus will call everyone to account for how we have all wronged God as well as each other. It's worth saying, while we've all been wronged in some way, there are those of us who are carrying real pain because of the injustice we have experienced in this life. Jesus will make it right. Your desire for justice will be satisfied. I I don't know how exactly. I don't know how exactly Jesus is going to do that, but I know that God, through Jesus, will bring perfect justice. Jesus will return as a perfect judge, and in the next life, when you see what Jesus does, you will look at it and you will say, thank you. Thank you for seeing justice done. That is just. Perfect justice is only, will only ever be found in Jesus. And by the end of chapter 24, after everything David has gone through, I think he gets this. He gets this idea. He realizes that when it comes to administering justice, choosing what is just, it's best left in the hands of God. So look, at, look how David responds to this, this awful question of what option to choose for judgment. David said to, to Gad the prophet, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. David chooses the plague of death because it's most directly from God's hands. David is asking God to be the executioner as well as the judge. It's like asking the person who you wrong to be the judge and, and to work out your sentence in your, your prison sentence. It, it, it's meant to sound like a risky thing to do, but that's the chance that David's wanting to take here. After the 11 chapters of watching God bring about ever-growing ripples of calamity on David for his sin with Bathsheba, David would still prefer to receive justice from God's hands because when it's from God's hands, there's still the chance for mercy. And that's exactly what happens. But God's mercy is confronting. Take a look what happens. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the designated time. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Bathsheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster he had concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough. Withdraw your hand. It seems that rather than three days of plague, the language of the, from morning until the appointed time, it seems to be the appointed meal. So it's only one day, it seems, is what he's trying to say, that one day, not three is what God actually gives. And yes, 70,000 people died for David's sin. But this is a picture, this is meant to be a picture of God relenting, right? 
This is meant to be a picture of God being merciful to David and Israel by not giving them what they really fully deserve. This is God holding back perfect justice. So at the end of chapters 13 to 24, we're left with this odd sense of unease because all the way through, we've seen evil and injustice and at each point, we've seen how human justice just can't be served. Either it's too little or it's non-existent or it's too much and goes too far. And in chapter 24, God almost seems to hold back from doing justice too. But we're meant to see that this time it's different. God is not ignoring evil. God is not being, he's not pretending it's not there. He's being merciful towards evil. God is relenting. He's holding back from pouring out the full extent of judgment that evil deserves. It's not that God was going to be over the top. It's not that he saw what he was going to do and went, yeah, that's probably too much. It's not that he did that. He said, no, that's just, I'm just, just not going to do it. It's that God's mercy won out. God's kindness and forgiveness held back his own justice. And there's something really confronting about this because it reminds us that every day is a day that God is holding back justice for us. Every new day we wake up is a day when God could rightly pour out terrible and devastating judgment on our entire world worse than we've ever experienced before. He would be just and fair in doing so. But every new day is a day when God is relenting, holding back from giving us what we deserve. Really, what we're seeing is this great tension within God himself, that God is perfectly just, he hates sin perfectly. That is, if you've been wronged or hurt, and you feel that wrong, God is perfectly angry about how you've been treated and more. Because not only have you been mistreated, God has been mistreated by you being mistreated. God is angry about your sin and my sin more than we are. God knows what perfect justice would look like, and yet God desperately wants to be merciful, to relent from judgment, to forgive evil. How can God be both things? How can he be perfectly just and wonderfully merciful? Friends, this is where Jesus is so wonderful. Jesus comes as as David's true and perfect son, who never sinned, who never did anything wrong, never did any evil, and who dealt with the tension of God's perfect justice and wonderful mercy. Because that's what the cross is. The fullness of God's justice, and at the same time, the mercy of God on display. Because at the cross, what we have is the opposite of what happens with King David. At the cross, we see the true king not standing and watching as his people die for his sin. At the cross, we see the true king dying for his people's sin. At the cross, God does not relent. At the cross, God does not hold back his judgment. It's like for for ages upon ages, for eons, God, and even looking into the future, God's mercy has been holding back his his judgment, his justice. God's mercy has been keeping God 
from doing perfect justice, like, like holding back justice on a leash until the cross. When Jesus gets on the cross to step up and make sure justice would be served, then God's mercy allows God's justice to pour out on him. That's what, that's what we celebrate each year. That's what we celebrate each week. That's what we celebrate each year at Easter. God's amazing mercy and justice at the cross. I do hope you're going to come along next week, particularly if you're checking out Jesus. Come along and hear more about how Jesus deals with our sin. But friends, now at the end of 1 and 2 Samuel, I think we're meant to step back. After looking at all these chapters of the last eight weeks, it really does feel like we come to a kind of dull end, doesn't it? I think we're meant to step back and see God's unfolding plan again and again. God's promises through Samuel and through Saul and through David to show us what he is like, the type of king he's going to provide us in Jesus. Jesus, a king who will bring about true and perfect justice. And at the same time, a king who in his amazing mercy will bear the justice of God for us. And if King David have had armies and mighty men who risked their lives because of who he was, then Jesus is worth of a million times more than that. Our King Jesus is wonderful because he is not like David. He is so much better. And so it is a privilege for us to serve and worship him. Let's pray that's how we do that. That's how we live. Our Heavenly Father, this is a confronting part of your word and there are aspects of your character that we find confronting. Your justice, it's perfection. How you see all and know all and yet also your mercy is confronting as well because it reminds us of how much we depend on it. And there is nowhere more that we depend on it than at the cross. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to depend on your mercy the way David depended on your mercy. Father, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that in Jesus we have this wonderful hope of justice and mercy perfected. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.